0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Robert. Um, Well, I'm Bob, and uh, I'm commonly known as Montana Bob. A friend of mine stuck that on me. And um, I'm an alcoholic. And... um, I have probably many other things wrong with me. I get them pointed out now and again to me. But um, I've been in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I my sobriety date is March 28, 1982. That just so happens to be uh, my belly button birthday. Also, I partied so hard celebrating my birthday starting in October that I just wore out. Didn't go any farther. But um, I have I. I should be sitting outside because it's it's 15 degrees right now, and I could probably bring the sh- swelling in my head down after that introduction. I um I it's not that I'm brilliant. I just stuck in there long enough that I got exposed to enough of the fellowship and the service structure in Alcoholics Anonymous that I learned about the traditions, and um, I love the traditions. They are in fact name of my home group where I go to AA and I'll be going there tonight later on. And um, when I came stumbling through the doors out of a treatment center, the first group I went into was the Traditions Group. And they—and um, really, it's kind of funny how that, that happened because the Traditions Group started because of a fight in another group and it was over the Traditions. And so some of the people grabbed the podium and they left. And Uh, They went over somewhere else and started a new group, and they called themselves a traditions group, and that's where I ended up. And so they were very insistent upon uh, those who came into AA. As soon as you were uh, done shaking enough, they they got you into, you know, doing service work and uh, learning the traditions and being of service. And my very first job, I was the chairman of the group. I set up the chairs. And then they ended up trusting me with all kinds of different stuff as I went along in there. And because there were so few poop, uh, few people at that time, uh, you, you, uh, sometimes had several jobs. But, um, when I first got going, um, I was, I was, um, I was kind of impressed by the way things worked in that group and how alcoholics, which I normally didn't get along with anybody before I got to AA, It was my way to the highway, and uh, I got into there, and here's all these people trying to do the same thing and trying to keep the group alive, and many times I was seeing people uh, agreeing to stuff that they didn't necessarily totally agree with, but as a group, they would agree to it and move forward with it, and uh, that doesn't mean that it was always a right decision, but we all agreed to it, and sometimes they were wrong, but then we would correct them. But uh, the unity, I, I discovered, was was the big thing. And over the years, I've learned more and more and more about the unity of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it is, as it says in one of our books, that the unity of Alcoholics Anonymous is the most cherished quality our society has, because without it, um, it wouldn't go anywhere. And you're going to find that I'm going to talk mostly about Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's... That's the only fellowship that I, I belong to. Um, I happen to be a Class A trustee for an SA, uh, and thanks to Steve, who asked me to put my name in, I became involved last July. I became a member, or a, not a member, a Class A trustee for SA, and I've learned an awful lot about SA. And, and anything that I say about the traditions, um, I believe, fits any fellowship any fellowship, um, no matter what the fellowship, the principles are basically the same. The unity. And I know that I have a lot of friends in Al-Anon. I've been around Al-Anon for years and years. I just love them to death. And Al-Teen, I love them. And I know that it's the unity that keeps them going just as well as it's the unity for AA. And when you've got a lot of... I know that many of the other fellowships probably don't have the same problem we do in AA, but we have a lot of egos in AA and we almost tear ourselves apart sometimes with Serena. Oh. Hello. And uh, what's happened is over the years, uh in AA, once they got the fellowship started, they saw that there was a lot of problems out there and, and within our fellowship and we had a lot of egos and a lot of um pride and, and a lot of things that were eating at us and could possibly destroy us. And, and we were making a lot of mistakes and learning from the mistakes. And out of these, the 12 traditions were started. They were compiled. And in and, and 1946 was the first time that they were formulated and published. And uh, Bill had a hard sell on those. He, he took them around and kept trying to talk about them. But sometimes people would ask him to come and talk. And he said, but as long as you don't talk about the traditions. They didn't want him talking about those. And I'm not going to, uh the only ones we're going to cover today are going to be uh is going to be tradition one, but we're going to do a little bit of uh reading out of some of the books that we put on the fly that fire and um and i I just hope that everybody can enjoy this uh, I'm not an expert I have made lots of mistakes in the tradition and um I can possibly give you an example of how I've broken every tradition or was a participant in it, either at the uh, group level, at our district level, which is a small a geographical area for a, an AA for, you get several groups in a, in a geographical area and you call that a district. And then like within the state of Montana, the whole state of Montana is area 40 and area 40 participates in the general service conference, which is all about, uh, United States and Canada and
2: I I would like to interrupt you half a sec and
1: this is Robert M and and I would like to invite all of the people that have kind of come aboard a little bit late to mute their phones if you would please. Uh, We pick up a lot of background noise and it uh, will degrade the uh, quality of the recording. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. Don't ever worry about interrupting me. It gives me more time to think. (laughs) It gives me a a step up. But um, one of the things that I would like to read first is out of the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, big book, and on those people who have a fourth edition, it's on page 561, and for those using a third edition, it's 563. And it's uh, just before the tradition, the page right before the tradition. And it says there, the AA tradition, to those now in its fold, Alcoholics Anonymous has made the difference between misery and sobriety, and often the difference between life and death. AA can, of course, mean just as much to uncounted alcoholics not yet reached. Therefore, no society of men and women ever had a more urgent need for continuous effectiveness and permanent unity. We alcoholics see that we must work together and hang together or else most of us will finally die alone. The 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous are we AAs believe the best answers that our experience has yet given to those ever-urgent questions. How can AA best function and how can AA best stay whole and so survive? On the next page, AA's 12 traditions are seen in their so-called short form, the form in general use today, this is a condensed version of the original long form, a traditions as first printed in 1946. Because the long form is more explicit and of possible historic value, it is also reproduced. <coughs> Excuse me. And I believe that the, the, I've just loved the traditions. Uh, and you'll find that in here, that actually the long form of traditions, too, is actually shorter than the short form. But um, in the rest of them, uh, I really love referring to the long form a lot because it's so, it's much more explicit and gives much more information and it's, it's really been a steadfast thing for myself and many of the, uh, the things that I've worked in in the district in the area and at the general service conference in New York, um, by bringing forth the things that we needed to hear and see and remember when we were deliberating and making decisions, uh, for our groups and districts and for AA as a whole. Um, the first one, the short form of the first tradition, is our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Where the long form says each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. AA must continue or live must continue to live, or most of us will surely die. Hence, our common welfare comes first, but individual welfare follows close afterward. And in that, um, as it was explained to me and I came to learn, was that I'm just a little piece of this whole thing. And that without it, I'm going to die. But more importantly than that, there's a ton of people out there that are living right now that need this so bad. And whatever fellowship we're in, that need this. And there's people out there, we've got grandchildren that are going to be born and family members that are going to be born that are going to need this when they get here. And to me. That has become the most important thing to me is to make sure that this fellowship, this program, is there exactly the way it was when I showed up so that it's not some uh, perverted or diluted version of what that was. Because I was so grateful when I showed up, and today I am so grateful, that the doors were open, the coffee pot was on, and the book was open, and there was people there who had experience in this that could talk to me and explain this program, how it works. And I believe that this is why this tradition is so important. And I'll I'll just say this about the 12th tradition, is it talks about anonymity. And and anonymity, when I first came in, I thought that just meant keeping yourself secret so nobody knew who you were. But it was explained to me by the old-timers that anonymity meant, for me, not trying to, to get notoriety or be known for everything that I did. In fact, they told me that I should, I should do things for people and not tell anybody about it. I interpreted that not to tell the person I did it for about it, but I went and told my home group about it so they could still pat me on the back. I didn't understand what anonymity meant. I just, it's for me to give up what I believe are my rights so that the group can prosper and the group can stay whole. And everything that I thought was not quite right, has turned out to work out just fine, even though I didn't get my way. And I have learned in the service of Alcoholics Anonymous that there there comes a time, rather than be a divisive member, to be one who joins in and helps in this unity, rather than keep stirring the pot up. If I gain more information that has to deal with the issues at hand that I was dealing with, I can bring that to the table later. But to just sit there and keep stirring the pot, that does nothing but cause disunity in the group. And my home group's a good example of being one of those that had to split off from another group because of their failure to comply with the tradition. I might add that the only time I get in trouble is when I'm trying to skip around the end of a tradition or a step. (laughs) Every time I'm trying to find a way around doing something like that. Okay. I hope everybody has a uh, a 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book with them or have read it. If not, I'll read some portions out of it. Well, we can do this, the whole thing. We'll just do it in portions. It's on page 129 of the 12 Steps and 12 Tradition. Tradition 1. Um, it starts out. The unity of Alcoholics Anonymous is the most cherished quality of our our society has. Our lives, the lives of all to come, depend squarely upon it. We stay whole or AA dies. Without unity, the heart of AA would cease to beat. Our world arteries would no longer carry the life-giving grace of God. His gift to us would be spent aimlessly. Back again in their case, alcoholics would reproach us and say, what a great thing AA might have been. Does this mean, some will anxiously ask, that, a, that in AA, the individual doesn't count for much? Is he to be dominated by his group and swallowed up in it? We may certainly answer this question with a loud no. And I, I've got to say right here that I I just don't believe that people get more attention than in our fellowships as individuals than they do in these fellowships anywhere. Uh, we really lavish a lot of attention on on the individual. But we also realize that the group has to stay whole or we're not going to be of help to anybody. And I know that there's some tendencies uh today, once in a while, to try to just make everybody fit uh, because we, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But we're not talking about feelings here. We're talking about life and death. And when we start diluting the message to try to include everybody in one fellowship, we're not, we're not carrying on what was given to us. The reason we get along so well in our fellowships is because we're sitting in the same room with people who have gone through the same thing we have. And when we start diluting that by trying to worry about hurting people's feelings, we get into trouble. Now, I've hurt a lot of people's feelings in my time, but it wasn't over things like this. It's, it's um, My concern is to try to help this fellowship or the fellowship that I'm in Um, remain something that is viable for people for years and years to come. And as far as I understand it, that's part of my job now in essay is to to help uh, bring forth the traditions and some of the experiences that I've had in that. We believe there isn't a fellowship on earth which lavishes more devoted care upon its individual members. Surely there is none which more jealously guard the individual's right to think. Talk and act as he wishes. No AA can compel another to do anything. Nobody can be punished or expelled. I'd like right at this point here. We've had some things over the last last few years, um, and over quite some period of time actually, where uh, this this has really come to the fore and been a great question, because we can't kick. I know in Alcoholics Anonymous we can't kick anybody out of AA. There are, however, people who can be, there comes a time, once in a great while, and it needs to really be carefully considered, when there's somebody who is actually disrupting and causing such disunity in the group that they have to be asked to leave the group, but they're not asked to leave AA. And I would draw everybody's attention, um, and if you need this, there's a, a paper that was written by Bill W. in 1969 about disruptive members and making sure that we take care of the group. We can't just let somebody come in and destroy a group, uh, be it me or anybody else. The group has to act on that and preserve the unity of the group so that it's a, a, a viable uh, place for people to come and get sober. Um, we also have to make sure that it's a safe haven for everybody that comes through that door, that they're not going to be... Um, um, given a hard time or attacked or or whatever while they're sitting in that room. And that's that's part of our unity obligation as a group. And I take that very seriously. Um, um, I've had to participate in a couple of decisions. Um, I didn't have to make the decision. I just chaired the meeting. But I just needed to point that out. And if anybody needs that type of information, uh, please forward the, the question to me. Um our 12 steps to recovery are suggestions. The 12 traditions, which guarantees AA's unity, contain not a single don't. They repeatedly say, we ought, but never, you must. And this is what you know, Bill even said, that every group has the right to be wrong. And as we read in other parts of literature, that there's, there's forces out there that that will dictate what happens when we don't we don't live up to our uh the principles of these traditions. And for us in Alcoholics Anonymous it's John Barleycorn is one of our biggest ones. That we're just gonna end up driving ourselves right back out to drink if we don't live up to the principles. And for a guy who had no principles in his life when I showed up here, well one. Me rather than you. But uh When I, after I got here and started learning some principles, I treasure those principles. They have taught me a way to live where I can, I can be in a, I can, I could join my family again. I can be, I could be a son and a brother and a, and an uncle and, and all these things. And now I can be a husband and a grandpa. And, uh, and people aren't afraid of me. People trust me with their kids. And it's because of these principles that I learned here. Um, To many minds, all this liberty for the individual spells sheer anarchy. Every newcomer, every friend who looks at AA for the first time is greatly puzzled. They see liberty verging on license. Yet they recognize at once that AA has an irresistible strength of purpose and action. How, they ask, can such a crowd of anarchists function at all? How can they possibly face their common welfare first? What in heaven's name holds them together? And for me, I really, I have no qualms at all. I know it's God that holds us together, but it's the principles that were given to us that hold us together. And the fact that when I came into AA, they just accepted me. They just, I I was just a member. They didn't care what I had done. They weren't looking at my past, you know, other than for me to share it willingly. But they weren't looking to see what I had done. I was not being checked out. I didn't have to meet a, a checkoff list to belong to this. I just came in, and I felt so welcome, and because of that welcome, and because of that, I felt that I finally belonged to something, I mean, I really fit in here, I started having more, uh, more of a tendency to go along with what the group would say and, and act when there was a, a clear majority than I would, I would do what they wanted. Those who look closely soon have the key to this strange paradox. The AA member has to conform to the principles of recovery. His life actually depends upon obedience to spiritual principles. If he deviates too far, the penalty is sure and swift. He sickens and dies. At first, he goes along because he must, but later he discovers a way of life he really wants to live. Moreover, he finds he cannot keep this priceless gift unless he gives it away. Neither he nor anybody else can survive unless he carries the AA message. The moment this 12-step work forms a group, another discovery is made that most individuals cannot recover unless there is a group. Right there, that piece that I read, it says, um, the moment this 12-step work forms a group. Now, that doesn't matter what fellowship you're in, but it says the moment this 12-step work forms a group. Not Bob didn't form a group and not me and a bunch of other people formed a group. It's the 12-step work of this fellowship that formed a group. Therefore, I don't get to call it my group. It's a group. For in my case, it's a group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when we started that group, we took on the obligations of of putting forth an, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and making sure that we stuck to that. And and it isn't ours to. We have the obligation of uh, and the and the the right and uh, not the right but the obligation and the um the uh, uh the blessing of being able to participate participate in that and make sure that it stays a group where people can come there and hear the aa message not something that's all mixed up and for whatever fellowship you happen to belong to i know it's the same for you that we need to do that i was just the other night i was i was i was able to go to the the psychiatric ward again Um, not for myself, but I went in there to carry a message in there, and one of the newcomer gals in our group went in there with me. And because of this unity tradition, we got to go in there and carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to the people that were sitting in there wanting to to hear it and be in that meeting. It wasn't Bob's message. It wasn't the other gal's message, and it wasn't something I dreamt of. It was the message that was there when I came in, and that is one of the treasured things of unity that that brings this thing forth. I've had the blessing of being able to take the message into many, many places, and many opportunities. Uh, unbelievable to me, I got to go to Folsom Prison once and take a couple of meetings in there. And I have to be honest with you, it was real. I'm a cowboy. It was really hard for me not to say hi. I'm Johnny Cash before I started my talk. But it was it was a uh what an opportunity to be in there and and taking the message of alcoholics anonymous into those people and seeing in their eyes not all of them, but every now and then you hook up with somebody and you can see it in their eyes, they are hearing the message that we have been blessed to carry and that just means so much to me to be able to do those things and and in other countries uh have the opportunity to go there and even using a translator um is Seeing, seeing people identifying and then listening, and they're they're looking right at you, and they're hearing what you're saying. That is that is strictly because of this principle, and us staying with the message that we were blessed with, that God gave to these guys to give to us. And I and I know that if it was me trying to deliver something, it wouldn't work. But if I stick to what this what these traditions help me to do, and this program helps me to do. We can do this. It's amazing to me. Um, realization dawns that he is but a small part of a great whole, that no personal sacrifice is too great for preservation of the fellowship. He learns that the clamor of desires and ambitions within him must be silenced whenever these could change the group. It becomes plain that the group must survive or the individual will not. If there's no place for me to go, and there's no place for other people to go, I, I don't stand a chance. And um and, and to not be around this fellowship is, it creates such insanity. Um I, and I, I just gotta share this thing too. Last night, a, a fellow, um yesterday, a fellow called me, and he, I worked with him 16 years ago, and he hasn't been, he's been sober for 17 years. He has not drank for 17 years but he quit the program almost 15 years ago. And he is so totally insane and crazy from living that life that uh, he got locked up again and all of a sudden he wants some help. And we went to a meeting yesterday and, and last night and today I've talked with him on the phone and he is so amazed um, at what he's reading in this book now because his eyes can see it. And being able to have a place for him to go uh, rather than just being out there and be crazy. And I got to see in him exactly the way I would be if I had not been uh, being able to go to a meeting and be around these groups, have a sponsor and participate in this fellowship. That's why it is so critical for the unity to survive so that these meetings remain exactly what we were given. Uh, I'm the kind of guy who can be lost out here on the sea of alcoholism, and I finally swim up to a raft and climb on and I'm not two days dry and I want to remodel the raft and you know it's going to sink with my building I just need to learn this this is what's keeping me alive and I need to help keep it so it's for other people um he learns that um the clamors the clamor of desires and ambitions within him must be silent whenever these could damage the group, it becomes plain that the group must survive or the individual will not. So at the outset, how best to live and work together as groups became the primary question in the world about us. We saw personalities destroying whole people. The struggle for wealth, power, and the prestige was tearing humanity apart as never before. The strong people were uh, stalemated in our search for peace and harmony what was to become of our erratic band of alcoholics? As we had once struggled and prayed for individual recovery, just so earnestly did we commence to, the quest for the principles to which AA itself might survive. On anvils of experience, the structure of our society was hammered out. I love that line. On the anvils, on anvils of experience, the structure of our society was hammered out. That doesn't mean that it was just some brilliant decisions that people came up with because they thought them up. It was the animals of experience made some horrible mistakes, went through some horrible pains, and therefore we came up with the, the traditions that they came up with them and have passed them on. And uh, I, I, I marvel at them today at how much trouble they can solve if I just live up to them and when our home group and in, in our districts and all of our fellowships. By them, it, it just it's laid out flawlessly.
2: Uh, Bob, I'm going to interrupt you one more time. This is Robert. And uh, if people who are coming on
1: late, if you would please mute your phones, if that is possible, uh, as it will cut down on the amount of background noise and interference and improve the quality of the recording. So.
2: That's it. Thank you very much. Back to Bob. All
1: right. Thank you, Robert. Um, Countless times in many cities and hamlets, we reenacted the story of Eddie Rickenbacker and his courageous company when their plane crashed in the Pacific. Like us, they had suddenly found themselves saved from death, but still floating upon a perilous sea. How well they saw that their common welfare came first. None might become selfish of water or bread. Each needed to consider the other's In in abiding faith, they knew they must find their real strength, and this they did find in measure to transcend all the defects of their frail craft, every test of uncertainty, pain, fear, and despair, and even the death of one. Thus has it been with AA, by faith and by works, we have been able to build upon the lessons of an incredible experience. They live today in the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, which, God willing, Shall sustain us in unity for as long as we may, need, as He may need us. And I, um, once again, I just, I, I just, I love the traditions. In fact, sometimes people say I'm a stickler on them, but I just, I try to read them as they were written and try to live up to them as they were written. When I first got in the AA, I was so, I was so um, delighted to be in a group of people that accepted me. And I was going to a, a couple of groups right here in the Billings area, and but that's all the bigger I thought that AA was. I thought it was just it was as big as my group, or at least you know a couple of groups. And then later, as I sold a little longer, I was asked to do some things at the district, and and I became a representative for our, our group. You know, some time later, and when I went to the district, I saw well, AA is a little bigger than just our group, and there's a bigger conscience than just our group. And then after that, then I ended up going to the area assemblies for the whole state of Montana, and I saw how big AA was, and I started getting introduced to the idea that it's actually worldwide, that there was people all over the world involved in this, and that what what my group and what I did and, and what our group did could have an effect on that, and we were to join in with the rest and become part of that rather than just trying to strike off on our own and as we'll get into the traditions in in future months we'll see where that 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 kind of understanding had to had to come about but in this in this first tradition the unity which for me as an alcoholic was one of the hardest things i did not join with people very well at all uh fact like terribly I always tried to set my own rules and I ran my own trail and I and I almost died from it. And this fellowship saved me. And it's because of that this fellowship saving me and the people in it being so generous and loving and, and loving and tolerant and making me feel welcome. I started I started understanding some of this and I and I became willing to go along and do the stuff for the group and that the group wanted. And it doesn't mean um I know that For unity, we have a thing called a group conscience. We make group conscience decisions. And I was to learn that that isn't just a bunch of us winning the battle. The group conscience decision is a decision that's made by a group after all of the information is presented and everybody's had a time to hear it and and decipher it and, and decide upon it. Then we make a decision together as a group being fully informed. I'm here to tell you I've participated in some group conscience decisions that were really bozo decisions because we didn't even have close to the information. And we just made a decision and went with it, and it was terrible. Since that time, we have tried to get as much information as we can before we make those decisions. And that is part of the unity in, in being unified. At the district level, making decisions that wouldn't impact the other groups, I, I'd learned was so important that if we made decisions uh, just with a couple of groups, our, our district in Montana, the one that I'm involved in here, uh, it's, it's about 160 miles wide by about 180, almost 200 miles the other direction. So we cover a lot of country. Well, we don't have that many people here, but we have a few groups. And, uh, but we can make a decision based on just a couple of groups and really cause harm to the other groups. And I, we have to make sure that we don't make it harmful to them through the things that we do. And also in what we, uh, may think is a good idea for our group, we can cause harm to the other groups by starting to, uh, say that this is alright or say we start enforcing dress codes and stuff like that on people. Things that our traditions actually talk against. We have to be careful that we don't do those things. And it's the unity of the district that really counted. I, I came to understand that. And but later, I was the district committee member and represented our district at the area. And I found out that my my job was to carry the message of the district, not my message. That made me bite my lip a few times because I thought they made wrong decisions. But when I went to the area and presented that decision, I didn't get to stand up there and say, well, I don't like this decision that those bozos are making, but here's what they want. I went up there and presented it as, here's what District 11, here's the decision of District 11, we'd like to present this to the area for action. And that taught me so much how to join others. And then I was fortunate enough to go to the General Service Conference in New York for two years and represent Area 40 Montana. And I learned I met so many more people and AA got so big and I I understood that when I was in in New York at that to participate in the unity of AA in the United States and Canada which affected a lot of the world too that I wasn't there as Montana's senator you know Area 40's senator to just carry forth I was there as Montana or Area 40's donation to the group conscience of AA at the general service conference. And I was there to hear everything I could hear and learn everything I could hear, do learn, and then make decisions based on that, that were the best for AA as a whole. And that unity, I, I, I really learned a lot more about unity there and being willing to have spirited debates on the floor and then not hate the person because they didn't do my way but then we would hug and go ice, have ice cream, which just totally blew my mind, that <laughs> I, I started learning these things. And there was something else that really set me back. It's when I was uh, listening to the person who was our trustee at large who participated in the World Conference, where all the representatives from all the different The the AA fellowship from all over the world, they have different conferences and they, they send a representative to this world conference. And when he was there at that, he was talking about the fact that we didn't have enough money to translate these books into the languages that people needed and that there were people in many, many countries that had no access to a big book that they could read and understand. And I'm not kidding you, I wept. It it just blew me away because, I mean, I've seen people here throw them in the fireplace because they got mad. And over there, there's people that are dying because they can't even get a big book. And we didn't, and to translate is such a difficult thing because you have to understand the language and be an alcoholic to translate it correctly. And I just, I I really, my fire and my zeal for the uh, AA to be carried worldwide, but carry the unified message of Alcoholics Anonymous that was so critical and boy I understood the enormity of the task at that moment and I am so grateful for the experience that I was given to go learn these things. But unity and standing in the in the general service conference in New York and joining everybody else in prayer and and just, you know, thanking God for everything I I was I was totally set back. And I'm telling you, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I hated God because He had really let me down. And because of this fellowship that was in here, just perfect for me and the people so loving and understanding and just included me, um, I was taught to be a, a to come to a whole different place and cherish the unity of the message that we have and do my very best to help that be carried out to other people all over the world. All over the world, and we're still not there. But I know that we're we're doing better. I'm gonna have to get off my soapbox here in a minute. Trying to preach. Um, what we'll do now? I have another book that I that I also has got a ton of information in it. But um, would you do you want to take some questions now, Robert or Steve? Uh, since we don't really have anybody that's sending in any email questions, uh, let's just open it up and see if uh, there's anybody that would like to unmute and ask Bob a question at this point.
3: This is Paul in Murphysboro. Hey, Paul, go ahead. How are how we doing? Uh, earlier on, you talked about uh, when you have a person in the group that um, you want to try to preserve unity. Mm-hmm but they don't seem to fit in not that you want to kick them out of the program but it breeds a lot of discontent um maybe sharing some experience on how that was handled
1: oh sure well that was a that was a, a big thing and it, it was actually somebody that was being uh, extremely disruptive and and uh, well, I'll just put it out there this 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 fellow was actually a predator and he was preying upon all the ladies in the group. And he, would, he had gotten himself into a position where he was being there during the day, a lot opening, and he was chairing a lot of the meetings when other uh, old-timers weren't around. And there was a halfway house or a, a pre-release center for the prison was across the street, so they sent a lot of their people over there. And he was pressuring them um, with b- reporting that they were doing things wrong if they didn't comply to his wishes. And there was a lot of stuff going on there with this guy and for a long time. I've known him for years, and this wasn't a a revelation to me, but it had gotten so bad in this group that the group came to me and asked what they could do, and um, we got a hold of New York. And fortunately, a lady that I had met in New York there, uh, her group had gone through this too, and she sent us some information and it was a writing by Bill W. that he wrote in 1969 about disruptive members. And I have that on file. And also, she sent us a format for what their group did for chairing a meeting to make a decision on this. And I, they asked me to chair it because I was not a member of the group. And I had some experience with being the area chair and chairing meetings where I learned how to chair. You don't put forth your ideas. You just chair the meeting, maintain order, and make sure the traditions are lived up to. And that's what my job was. And they invited the fellow who was the who was the problem, and they invited everybody in the group to attend it. And at the end of it all, they made the decision that they had to ask him to leave the group, and they asked him to leave for at least a year. And then he could come back and, and um, ask the group if he could rejoin, and he'd have to to come to a business meeting and do that. And that's how that was resolved. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you very much. You bet. And if anybody uh, needed that, I, I do have that on on uh, file. So if you want to get a hold of it, Steve or Robert or something, I can send it to them.
2: Thank
3: you. Uh,
1: thanks, Bob. This is Robert. And do you also have the uh, format for chairing that meeting available? Yeah, it's all in one email. Great. My friend Valerie from uh, New York, who's since uh, retired, uh, she sent that, and uh, it worked really, really well. I have another question, if I can ask.
3: This is Paul again. Uh, when you talked about anonymity, and um, I really like the idea of not trying to get notoriety to do things for people without um um. Even outside your, you know, for a person specifically, but then you don't go ahead and brag to your group. Um. Can you expound a little more on that? Because I, I think in the past, most people when they come in, you know, they don't want to be recognized or known, and and maybe you know, an essay that is a little more touch and go. But any more experience on that would be great.
1: You bet. That's a great question. Um. As a matter of fact, when I was in Chicago last year at the conference um, and I and I listened to stories of the people up there when they are speaking at the convention and also throughout the, the part of the week that I was there listening to people talking about anonymity and stuff, I realized that anonymity is a, is a much different um, uh, item. Really, it's a, it's, a, it's a little tougher item in SA, quite a bit tougher than it is in AA. But AA has been around for a long time. But when AA started, it was almost as as hard. I mean, people were afraid people were going to find out about them. And, and, I mean, the alcoholics were looked at as social outcasts and everything. But the anonymity, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, is where people have the the freedom and the right to come to AA and not have their names uh, given to anybody have their faces put on any posters or on any films or anything? They should be able to come in there and remain totally anonymous. That is, that's one of the things that that's really big. That that is a real safety thing, and it, it's really important that when people are watching PSAs on television about Alcoholics Anonymous, that we do it in a way that they see that we don't just show people's faces. And but anonymity. Um, also besides just making sure that we keep their their anonymity also i'd like to say this i don't have the right to break anybody else's anonymity at all whenever whatever i i you know and even breaking my own anonymity i have to be very careful that there's not uh people in that are standing too close to me that get get theirs broken or because of, the, of people that know me you know or they're the people that know them that know me and they ask me kind of different questions and I've found out different ways to answer them so that they don't break other people's anonymity. I just have to be careful of everything that I do with that. And also, there's posthumous anonymity for people who are already dead that I, I don't have any right to break their anonymity no matter if they're dead or not. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very respectful thing, I believe, and, it, and it's something that they I do I don't know, I feel such a, a respect thing about giving that to them, and that's something that AA has taught me, and that's what anonymity is about. The old timers, however, started explaining to me something entirely different, and that is in when we get into the twelfth tradition, um and, and we talked a little bit more about it there, but they were talking to me about the anonymity of me just keeping my uh not not doing things, trying to gain attention. And I'll give you an example of how I messed that one up. When they were telling me that I should do things for somebody and not tell them about it. Well, I was I I was divorced at the time, and my ex-wife was living in town with her husband, and I'd caused him a lot of grief while I was drinking, Well, when they were married together. I mean, I'd caused him a lot of grief. And uh, they happened to be gone, back to Europe where she was from, and and um, they were over there visiting. And I went by their place one day, and I saw that their grass was about two feet tall. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get my lawnmower, and I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to mow that grass for him, not for her, for him. I wanted to pay him back for some stuff. So I did it. Well, then I went to this aftercare group I was going to, and I told them about mowing his grass for him. Well, then they told this gal that I was doing with at the time, they told her that I went up and mowed my my ex-wife's grass. Well, I found out right away there was probably a good reason for me to keep my mouth shut when I do good things for people. And the old-timers explained to me, no, Bob, it's not just for when you get in trouble because of it. It's when you do something good for somebody and they don't know who did it, just keep your mouth shut. It'll help you grow spiritually. And I I learned that from the old-timers telling me to do things for people and don't ask for credit for it, and if they don't know about it, who did it, just do it anyway. It's like making an anonymous donation to somebody or doing something else that benefits somebody, and I don't want any credit for it. I don't want want anybody to know about it. They finally got that through my head, and that has been something that has helped me uh, grow spiritually by being able to do those things and not want to take the credit for it or... People say, oh man, look what Bob did. You know, it's, it's, it works very good for me. Did that help? Yep. It's really hard at times not to get that pat on the back, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Anybody else?
3: (laughs) I guess I might as well just dump it off. This, Paul, I have a third question. Um, when you have newcomers and you were planning on a traditions meeting and they show up and there wasn't that many and uh, there's a group conscious to attend to the newcomers' need, um, sometimes I, I want to follow what we set said and, you know, maybe have another meeting for the person. Um, how does something like that work in? Because it seems a lot of times people will quickly jump around the meeting if you're having a group conscious and you're working on the traditions or, or not even the concepts, just the traditions and they're willing to, well, let's bypass that and just talk.
1: You know, if you're one against seven. Yeah. That's a great question. That has come up here many times. And uh, I give you an example of that. In, in I know in 8A, what happens a lot of times is uh, it's a closed meeting, and that, that I assume everybody knows that. Well, I'm going to explain. It. A closed meeting is for alcoholics only. You have to have uh, you have to be an alcoholic or have a problem with alcohol, and you're wondering about it. But alcoholism is the main issue. That's what a closed meeting is. And we've had over the years, and it's starting to get less and less because people are starting to understand what a group business meeting is and what a group conscience meeting is. And at our group conscience meeting, in in my home group, and I know in other home groups they've done this too, we've gotten together as a group and at a business meeting, everybody being fully informed, we made a decision to have closed meetings on these certain days. Closed meeting. And that was a group conscience decision. Okay. We have people from our home group chair the meetings, which helps. Um, but it isn't, it used to be that when somebody would come along and bring a, a non-alcoholic with them, a family member, or just whoever, they say, well, I got this person, uh, can you open the meeting? And a bunch of people in the group say, yeah, come on in, we'll open the meeting. That's not, that's not living up to what the group said. The group conscience was to have a closed meeting. And it takes a group conscience meeting to change that, meaning at the business meeting with everybody being informed that we're going to do something about this, and then they do it. It's not for whoever was just in attendance, whether they're members or not of the group, to change that. And, and a lot of people got a little upset at that, but we said, no, if, if we were going to have an open meeting, what we did was we advertised in the paper and we put it in the paper that there is a closed meeting at traditions group at this address on this night and also the people that come there understand that it's a closed meeting and then all of a sudden to change it and make it an open meeting we've just violated the trust that they've placed in us by people coming there uh they want to come in and and at some meetings people would bring kids and they want to bring them into the meetings and we've found nothing but trouble with that and we said no You need to hire a babysitter and and do something else or maybe one of us can babysit for you while you go to the meeting. Uh, Get a hold of us ahead of time because there's a lot of alcoholics that might have come to that meeting knowing that it's closed and they've just had it right up to the eyeballs with the kids for the last several days and they came to that meeting for some peace and to, to get their head back on right and they come in and they run into the same problem. Whatever the situation is, the group that the people that are sitting there that night don't have the right to change the group conscience decision of that group if everybody's living up to what unity is about. And that's the unity of the group. Instead of just having whoever comes up with a bright idea changing it. And I know that when a group has our, our home group, we made a group conscience decision. And this is something we do, is that when a new person shows up for the first meeting ever, automatically um uh, the topic is it's on the first step, and we have people chairing our meeting who are members of that group so they know how to chair the meeting, but they also know when there's a brand new person, we just go to first step that's what we do, and so that was already a group conscience decision that we we already had that decided.
2: Does
1: that help at all?
2: Yes it does. <laughs> Rob, this is Steve in Memphis. I have a question. Yeah, Steve. Um I was listening to you uh answer Paul's uh, last question there and um I was uh, noticing how you used the word group and meeting and and that and they were not synonymous. And um I, I I I have learned a little bit about that from, from you and from others, but I'd be grateful to hear you expound a little bit more on it. Like, what is the difference between a group and a meeting? Because you, cause, cause it appeared to me like like I think a lot of people consider, you know, if, if we're all here and we, we quote, unquote, take a group conscience, uh, then, then what we're really doing is taking a meeting conscience, and it's not the same as the group. Uh, that's what kind of hit me as you were talking. So if, if you could expand a, a little on that, I'd be grateful.
1: Oh, you bet. Boy, this is, <laughs> of course, you know, a lot of these have been hot issues um, over the years. And um, a meeting is just that. And there's such a thing as AA meetings that aren't groups at all. They're just meetings. They're where people meet, and uh, they just, whatever they decide at that meeting, they do it. But a group, or like a home group meeting, I belong to a home group. You know, I I belong to that group, and that's where uh, initially in the service manual it has. That's where you show up, and you're responsible, and you have one vote in AA, and that's at your home group. I don't vote at everybody else's group, but a meeting there's there's all kinds of that. We have a pamphlet called the AA group, and it's explained in there, and it um, there's just all kinds of meetings, and it and it. there's some of them. In fact, there's meetings. Such a thing as a meeting that's not even AA that we that people have, and they'll have people from different fellowships join together, and they'll have a meeting and kind of study a step. But it's not either an Al Anon or an AA or an FA or anything. It's just a meeting. But an AA meeting, um, as as such, is just that. And if it's put on by a group, then it's um, that's what that group has decided to have. But for for just people to uh, get together at a meeting mm-hmm. and decide to change it, that violates uh, what that group has decided. Um, we have all kinds of meetings. We got discussion and speakers and beginners and step tradition and big book and business meetings. But um, there's a there's just there's a the difference between just a regular uh, just a meeting and and um, a group. Bob, this is Robert. Yeah, Am I correct in understanding that the difference between a meeting and a group is a group has uh, service representatives? A group is registered with New York and has a secretary and a treasurer and an intergroup rep and a GSR and the various service positions that are outlined in that pamphlet, the group. I mean, well, ordinarily, have
3: anything except just uh, where it meets.
1: Yeah, ordinarily that would be so, because um, any any group can register with New York, and they don't even have to register with their district or area. Um, we've we've found that out through the years, and um, some meetings actually have registered, but normally what you would call a group has a general service uh, representative, somebody that represents them into the service structure, and then they have their people set up within the group, and they, they have business meetings, and they have somebody who's treasurer and the secretary and all those kinds of things. And that's, that's fairly normal. But because of the traditions and the lenient, and, and it allows everybody to make their own mistakes, there's meetings that are just meetings. They don't have any representative. They don't send any money on to anybody. They they just do their own thing, and they just have meetings. And um, and it says in our traditions that anywhere, anytime, that two alcoholics want to get together and call themselves a group, they can as long as they don't have any other affiliation other than like Alcoholics Anonymous. That probably just muddied the water, didn't it? No, I appreciate the clarification thank you yeah um, it says here that uh, if members are all alcoholics and they and, and if they open the door to all alcoholics who seek help regardless of profession gender or other distinction and meet all other aspects you find in a group and may call themselves an AA group um, they're encouraged to register at DSO as well as the area district and energy for central offices But there is uh, a a difference between just a meeting and a group. And there are some people that wanted to combine a lot of other fellowships, you know, and and they tried to just call them open meetings. And that's not what an open meeting was designed for. But people can actually have those kinds of meetings. That's no problem. They they just don't call them AA if it's involving all kinds of other people. But... um, I know that um, open meetings, there's open and closed meetings, and and a lot of times it's misunderstood what an open meeting is, and an open meeting means that anybody can come to that meeting. It doesn't necessarily mean that they get to speak at it or talk. They can just attend it, and sometimes this is for the benefit of the family members who might have somebody who's an alcoholic, want to come and see what AA is, what it's about, Sometimes members of the medical community want to come and see what AA is. In our town, we have a couple of colleges, and some of the professors send their students to AA to attend so many meetings so they get an idea what AA is about. We have had to ask the professors to tell those people not to take notes in the meeting. It makes alcoholics really nervous when you're taking notes when they talk. But... Uh, an open meeting is more or less uh, a, a place where people can come and find out about what AA is. It doesn't mean that we just mix everybody in and it, it's a combined everybody meeting. And they're very beneficial uh, to have, you know, people like that come to them and see what AA is. Does that help? Yeah, Bob. This fall, he back in Murfreesboro. Um, yeah,
3: sometimes an in intergroup will have a question where uh, there's nursing schools around the Nashville area
1: Mm -hmm. and
3: they're supposed to go to a a fellowship of some kind and they want to come to an essay meeting. And I think there's because of essay and not understood the same way AA and doesn't have a history yet that there's those fears. However, if you have an open meeting, you have an open meeting, but I think there's maybe been a little discouragement in that. Um, only because of the fear of the anonymity or just what people are thinking about what's not really, you know, maybe not really true. But, uh, it's just been my, my experience.
1: Can I don't well, know. That's, that, that's really good because I'll, I'll tell you, uh, for us, what we have found, and in essay, I really, I have come to understand what a difficult path that is. To just have an open meeting, that would be really, really tough, because there's a lot of people in there that have a lot of fears and, and discovery, and, and I absolutely mm-hmm. understand that. Um, but, you know, sometimes in dealing with the professionals, and that's what these traditions are really about, and that then it goes on to talk about that in the A Comes of Age, that this is, because of these traditions, this, was, this is what allows us to deal with the public at large. And the only people who can violate our traditions is us. Like the alcoholics. We're the only ones that can violate the alcoholic traditions. And then SA would be the SA people. The outside people can't violate our traditions. That's a misunderstanding by a lot of people. But when we start dealing, and that's, I happen to be on the Public Information Committee for SA right now. And that's what, that's what a lot of this stuff is for, is to go to the professional people and explain to them what we do and what we don't do and what kind of meetings are available. Or if we have a, a few people, say say there was a few people in SA that were okay with going and talking as a panel to some professionals to help them understand what FA is. That's the kind of thing that can happen. But to just have an open meeting might be something I can understand why it would be highly discouraged in SA. And uh, even in AA in places, they, they just don't want anybody else coming in. But those are some of the things that we can do uh when we find people that are that are willing to go do that in the service structure. And and that's also to preserve the unity of AA, uh to keep the message at face and so that people can understand. It's like um uh, like Bob, Dr. Bob said, you know, anonymity is is uh we can become so anonymous that nobody can even find us. And in the home groups One of the things that, in my home group, I always introduce myself as, I'm Bob, I'm an alcoholic. I don't give my last name because I had deals to do with the public that I was doing for AA. And I kept saying my last name and I wasn't supposed to. So I had to stop using my last name in in group. But in my home group, I tell people who I am so that they can find me in the phone book. They can't find Bob in the phone book, in our (laughs) meetings. But I, I understand how this comes about, and, and Bob said, you know, in our groups we can't be that anonymous. But at the public level, that's what it's about. But people have to know how to find it, and that can be a real dilemma. And that's what some of these committees are about in developing some literature and stuff to pass out to these folks, so that um, that they can get an understanding of what we're about and what SA is about. That help?
2: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, there... Bob, Bob, hey, I I just wanted to ahead. point out that there are a couple of meetings and a couple of groups in Nashville that have decided to have open, regular open meetings, so they are doing it.
0: Oh,
1: wow, man, in Nashville, huh? Yep. Oh, I'm going to be there. Uh-huh. I'm going to have to go to one. Atlanta also has an open meeting at the uh, recovery center, that uh, the Talbot Center, and we have
2: it listed on the uh, on our website and in the uh, in the print versions of our meeting list, and it's open to anybody that wants to attend.
1: And that that is that that's fantastic. And that's that's for AA and for I don't know, for anybody, you know, it's uh to be able to have something like that that really fits in with this first tradition is because then people can come there and find out from the fellowship what the fellowship is about. And that really strikes that unity of keeping a uniform message going out there. Instead of getting something uh, that somebody heard or they thought they under, or reading it on CNN or something like that, hearing about it. And, uh, that's, that's really important. Uh, and that's what we use our service structure for a lot of us, to get that out. That's fantastic.
2: Were there some items you wanted to cover in AA Comes of Age? Bond?